with cannabis, the mantras are start low, go slow, and then I edit this one and deliver where it needs to go. So it's actually most important in, in three, in my opinion, because we often think of cannabis more like smoke and take it orally, forgetting that there's all these other applications. I'm actually working now with a very cool group on trying to figure out how can you put cannabis in the eye? Because for glaucoma, people smoke currently. That's not a really good intake because it doesn't last very long and can have a lot of side effects. And really the main reason you put something directly where it needs to go amount of what you need to put there is is menu is way less and so you're avoiding systemic toxicity you're cutting the cost you're making it logistically a lot easier because often and and you're literally often removing any serious functioning problem because one of the big practical reasons why a lot of people don't want to use cannabis they're afraid of getting high let's put it this way you know, if you have pain and you smoke pot and you get high, people say, well, I'm my pain is better, but I'm high. I don't want to be high. So what do I do here? Well, if you have a pain in your feet, for example, a neuropathic pain, we'll try topical first. And I'd say that in some percent of people it works and it works really well and they don't have to smoke or take anything orally. And suddenly you have a tool that is highly effective relatively low cost and zero central or, or kind of overall toxicity i mean you can have theoretical toxicity there but it's way way less likely to happen than when you take things orally or when you inhale them today we are happy to discuss medical marijuana this is one of our hot topics of today medical marijuana has been in use for the last few decades and even before that as an alternative to help with anxiety pain inflammation sleeping issues and much more Nevertheless, it can be confusing and even controversial to understand how and when to use it. Today's guest, Dr. Misha Kogan, is here to help us demystify medical marijuana and discuss its origins and therapeutic uses. Dr. Kogan is medical director of the George Washington Center for Integrative Medicine, an associate director of the Geriatrics Fellowship Program there at GW, and is associate director of the newly formed GW Interdisciplinary Integrative Medicine Fellowship. He also recently published an amazing book, Medical Marijuana, Dr. Kogan's Evidence-Based Guide to the Health Benefits of Cannabis and CBD. I am Dr. Andrew Wong, co-founder of Capital Integrative Health. This is a podcast dedicated to transforming the consciousness around what it means to be healthy and understanding the root causes of both disease and wellness. Don't miss this discussion with Dr. Kogan about the benefits of medical marijuana, or rather we should say medical cannabis, and what you need to know before using it. Well, thank you, Dr. Kogan. Thank you, Misha, for coming on today. Great to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Andy, for having me. Yeah, so so Misha has been a good friend and mentor for for a long time now, integrative medicine. Certainly one of the aspects that, Misha, you're an expert on is medical cannabis. And um, I know you recently published a book uh, called Medical Marijuana. Dr. Kogan's evidence-based guide to the health benefits of cannabis and CBD. Let's kind of start with the basics. I think I learned this from the conference that you hosted at the GW, um, the, the IM for S conference. And I think you had Beth there, you know, you had, uh, you were talking about how uh, basically this idea of, of cannabis as, as a, you know, one of the, you know, originating from one of the original crops that, that, you know, we have, cultivated in the, the uh, agricultural times to, to becoming essentially, you know, maybe demonized or something or having this idea of, you know, this is not a good substance or something. So let, let's just first talk about what is cannabis and, and marijuana and, you know, what's the difference there and just kind of getting that real basic first. Right, right. It's interesting you brought up like the history here because this is one thing that history comes in full circles, right? I mean, before the prohibition, uh, the cannabis was kind of everywhere. It was the part of the treatment plan for so many different issues, including it was actually part of a pharmacopoeia in US, which is a standard prescription guide uh, for, you know, something like a century. And um, <clears throat> before that, it was one of the oldest medicinal plants that was used for a variety of different reasons. Um, and not just internally, externally, it was used a lot as well. 
ritually it was used a lot so it was pretty uh common and no one ever looked at this as something controversial I, I feel like it always been with the humans for thousands of years simply as part of our not just medical but a lot of daily routines for a variety of reasons and you know so we are now rediscovering this of course we're rediscovering the molecular structures so we're rediscovering how the plant interacts with our own and the cannabinoid system which turns out we have so I think this whole conversation should sort of be circling around this particular um, topic where it turns out we have our own cannabis system inside of us and it's extremely profoundly complex. And it, it, it is much older than endorphin system. It seems to be much more important for regulation of not just the brain activity and things like pain, for example, or perception, but also immune system and bone development, muscle development and heart function and pretty much almost anywhere you look with very few exceptions, the cannabinoids have some kind of regulatory or direct impact on particular function of our physiology. And so, you know, with that in mind here, you have a plant that we now call marijuana or for past whatever decades before, of course it had a it was just called cannabis in different languages, different words. And um, you know, now we have these terms as hemp CBD and <clears throat> a lot of terms that are very new, right? So the, the, the term marijuana, which is basically describes cannabis one, we argue though that the cannabis is a botanical term and marijuana is more legal term or recreational term, if you will. But you know, there's a lot of problems with that nomenclature to begin with. Um, I'm just gonna use it today interchangeably because I feel like marijuana is more of a historic word now that doesn't describe anything botanically or medically relevant. It's just there because the whole cultures grew up on this because there's a huge political attachment to it. Uh, and actually I feel um, there was a lot of discussion in our smaller circles of the experts in this field who feel like this word should be removed from dictionary because it, it's, in a way made up word only had negative connotation when they made up the word it became popular in a culture and we're still using it so let's get rid of it so that it would go back to cannabis and just keep it strictly medical in terms of the word the problem with that is then what do you do with the whole history here because unfortunately history here is not very good there's a lot of racial disparities there's a lot of segregation based on the word um, and so I think it's essential to keep the word more as a history and say look you know yeah we got this one totally wrong we had a government telling us total bs for decades claiming that this is dangerous substance <clears throat> with no medical use and it turns out not only they were wrong but they were just simply using all of this for political reasons so now we know the history that starting with Aslinger going back to the 1930s where they needed a scapegoat money to establish basically to establish DEA office in essence and they got this money and they're still operating on that budget decades later and the entire industry here quote unquote was established with a lie I think it's worth for the public and for everybody to know that and so I, I feel kind of let's keep the term so let's go to the CBD term and hemp term and, and THC, which are sort of the highest used words in our cannabis vocabulary. So the hemp is literally, usually we mean it's an industrial product that has less than 0.3% THC and then its application is not um, for, for medical use, but just for industrial use, for the textile, you know, for the protein, for the food for now the most fascinating thing with that i've seen is there's a hempcrete and apparently it's a the one of the most fastest growing industries in the in the um construction industry in the world apparently it's stronger than a regular concrete it's fireproof there's all kinds of benefits of having hempcrete it's also rapidly generatable and renewable and you know I, I have no idea, don't ask me. That's not my area of expertise, but I've just went to the conference where this was discussed heavily. Um, so, you know, so the hemp is industrial. The CBD from hemp uh, is now sitting in that agriculture bill. So 
which is not even the CBD from sub from hemp is now not even considered supplement. So by the way, those uh, listeners who are wondering sort of why the CBD has a totally separate purchasing process and you can't even buy it in a regular supplement stores like large respected distributors like Wellaweight or Fullscript, that's the reason because the supplements are regulated by FDA and CBD is not. CBD is under agriculture bill. It's not even considered food. It is sitting under a completely separate like domain, similarly to some degree to cosmetics. So it's a very interesting legality here that puts it in a weird category. So CBD from hemp is there. And then uh, we traditionally used the word non-psychoactive. Now we don't use that, we say psychotoxic. Um, so psychoactive is much broader word. Psychotoxic means you know something that makes you euphoric. So CBD is not gonna make you euphoric, uh, no matter how much you take. It's the THC that will, right? And THC is pretty much the only ingredient in cannabis that it will. I know it was a long answer. To, to no, no, that's very uh, comprehensive. Uh, great overview to start with. So it sounds like there's medicinal uses for cannabis or, or marijuana, depending mm -hmm. on how we, we say that. Mm -hmm. um, what are the conditions that, that uh, either medical cannabis or CBD are most helpful for in your experience? Right. And, and I'll put the plug for the book here because the book has um, intro and some orientation chapters, but then you have a lot of medical chapters. And what we try to do with the book, we try to say, look, what are the most common and most evidence applications of cannabis? And let's group them in categories and, and center chapters around those categories. So there's a significant um, symptom support, and, this, and I will divide those symptoms into several categories. So pain is a huge one. Uh, and this is where both THC and CBD has a role to play. THC probably has a bigger role than CBD, but there's a lot of um, lack of clarity as to what is the best mixes, what are the best combination, what are the best kind of doses, ratios, routes of administration for specific types of pain. But in generally, I would say cannabis should be somewhere between the first and second line of treatment for any chronic pain. Now, I'm not going to be afraid to say that in public, in open. And it's not just based on 2017 National Academies of Science re conclusive report that says uh, evidence for cannabis for chronic pain is grade A. And we have not a single drug for any chronic pain that is considered grade A evidence. We have grade B, we have grade C, we even have grade D drugs. And for the listeners, if you don't know what I'm talking about, so there's a, in evidence-based medicine, there's a gradation of, of the um, quality and level of evidence. And so there is, a, when somebody say grade A, it usually means gold standard treatment. So if I were to tell you that for a particular disease, there is a grade A treatment, you will assume that it's a first line gold standard recommended by every agency and every standard or every organization in the country. Um, to give you an example, uh, it would be a statins for coronary artery disease. This would be a grade A recommendation for, for existing uh, cardiac disease. The statins would be recommended with grade A evidence supported. For chronic pain, opioids are grade C, and grade C means borderline evidence, do never use first line, ne never use second line, maybe third line use. So in the cannabis, NAS put into grade A, just so that every listener understands. Now, this isn't an independent organization. It's not a government organization, but it's not an industry either. So, and this was a summary of 60,000 articles. So it's a massive assessment, massive review by kind of top leaders in the country. So, you know, I still use that as a big kind of the number one evidenced chronic pain. You have a lot of applications a lot around the cancer, which are also often grade A or maybe B. So nausea and vomiting, pain, as I mentioned, but even things like weight loss and appetite and, and general well-being. So we do think that cannabis taken cancer patients not only going to decrease nausea and improve their symptoms, but they're going to feel overall better. And especially those who are in the last six, of, six months of life. So there's a very critical palliative use of cannabis. 
And that's one aspect that I always intrigued me the most because we knew this for thousands of years. There is a historic documentation of cannabis use for people at end of life dating many thousand years ago, not just to Chinese medicine, but to all over the world. In Siberia, the, the discovery of Siberian princess, the mummy in the ice that had breast cancer and had a large pile of cannabis right next to her in the frozen ice. ice. So in every parts of the world where cannabis existed as you know, plant growing out there, uh, people figured out that it was be, to be used for that. Um, so that's the, another big category. Um, of course, there's a whole discussion of does the cannabis cure the cancer? I'm actually so happened to present today later in the day um, journal club on an article that's actually saying slow the horses. There's a, some evidence beginning to appear that maybe cannabis is not good for every cancer patient. For some, it may actually do reverse of good. I would say this is a very unclear topic. Uh, and part of it is simply, we do not have um, enough quality data. We have a lot of patient stories. So I expect that we're gonna see an explosion of more cases. My personal opinion of cannabis for cancer is mixed. I think we're gonna see some cancers where it's gonna take its own proper disease modifying place and it's already sort of does in some of our clinics but the evidence is very weak the only evidence we have a little bit for for curing cancer or supporting cure of cancer is brain cancers everything else is the evidence is non-existent whatsoever at least in brain cancer we have a small study randomized study showing that the one-to-one -one mix of thc and cbd actually prolongs life now that's a one study and like less than 20 patients. I mean, we don't typically use evidence like this to make any conclusions, right? Right. So that's that. Um, I think anxiety, sleep, like the depression, psychological symptoms can be very effectively managed with cannabinoids. It gets a little complicated there. Uh, interestingly, THC at low doses can be extremely anti-anxiety and very effective for chronic sleep. However, at high doses, THC actually could be anxiety and panic attack provoking and, and actually blocking sleep. So you got, you got not a simple relationship. CBD seems to be good for a lot of psychological issues, anxiety. There's some, even some data on in schizophrenia, you can decrease side effects of medications, balance patients with CBD. So there, there's a lot of data that suggestive of certain things without being conclusive. Definitely a lot of people use CBD for anxiety. And, and I've seen this being quite effective. The problem is that you have to use a lot and it becomes reasonably expensive if you're using it for them. Um, I have a follow-up question about that. Yeah. Um, CBD uh, can be metabolized by the hepatic enzymes, the P450 system. Exactly. If someone has anxiety, depression, and they're on, let's say, an SSRI or other medication, or they have... Mm -hmm some other, you know, psycho, psychoactive medication, how does, how does CBD interact with that? And, and is it better to, you know, check with pharmacy and all the drug, drug herb interactions there? You must be preparing yourself to take a certificate and, and being a cannabis <laughs> um, I've got to work on that. I'm learn, we're learn just, the best, yeah. We were just writing questions yeah. about this yesterday. Okay. Um, so that's exactly right. So CBD in theory can, it's a competitive inhibitor of P450. P so in principle, you can see a blocking of uh, metabolism of some, some medications and increase in side effects of certain things. And so there's definitely a concern and warning about it. The, the funny thing is that we're just not seeing this in practice. Um, you know, those of us who actually make recommendations, of course, are very careful. I have this weird idea, which I don't know where I got it from, uh, that, that keep everybody under 100 milligrams a day when you're just managing symptoms of CBD. It, it's not based on anything, just FYI. It's just sort of my experience has been. But I've heard stories that people take over 1,000 milligrams a day, and there's just, we're not seeing anything. So are we not seeing anything because those are the tend to be younger and healthier people who take this massive doses and it's just time and we will see something. 
Or is it maybe that it's possible that those interactions are not clinically relevant? And some of the experts, like foremost experts in this field, like Ethan Russo, believe that they're not clinically relevant. I don't want to quote him here, but I've heard him say this multiple times in different settings, making me believe that it's true. I, I think I've seen one or two things, and even I, I put some, a couple of things in the book. I mean, there was a case when I remember early on when patient was taking high-dose oxycodone, which is a narcotic, it's a pain medication like morphine. And the person was recommended by somebody to take massive doses of CBD several times a day. And it felt like that person was overdosing on oxycodone. Was it real? Was there other things involved? I'll never know. But the caution is there, I would say. Okay, so so let's let's go down our first rabbit hole here. Um, yeah. Some sub-questions based on your your amazing answers. So if we know that the 2017 NAS um, papers recommended grade A that, you know, cannabis used for chronic pain, mm -hmm. why isn't it that more available versus opioids at grade C? <laughs> well, yeah. So this is not a rabbit hole. I think it's a, I, I think that future generations will look at this and say, there is so much criminal intent in the pharmaceutical industry that's been happening. And we're going to look at this as dark ages of pharmaceutical industry. I have no doubt. Because in my mind, we have a, not only data that cannabis is grade A, we have data that if you combine cannabis with opioids, you're going to save 30% of lives lost. So if we have, you know, say 50,000, probably closer to 100,000 deaths a year, just from opioid overdose. I'm not even talking about side effects and links of side effects to other complications. That's over, well, all of the meds combined. That's more than a quarter of a million people dying every year. If you just look at the opioid overdose, let's say it's 100,000, that means that 30,000 lives a year can be saved by introducing cannabis for the whole country. I mean, the data is there and it's published in JAMA, in in New England Journal of Medicine. I mean, we're talking about top journals that have been high-end quality studies publishing this data now for about five or six years consistently across every state that legalizes cannabis in every single setting. Cannabis is becoming an exit drug for opioid induced. So, so just to be <laughs> clear, if someone's on opioids, you can start to wean them off by simultaneously introducing if, cannabis? If you add cannabis, yeah. you're, and our percentage is an exact uh, dosing is not really clear here. But if you have somebody on opioid, if they're addicted and you start them on cannabis, you have a very high chance of having them off opioids within a short period of time. And, and the data is such that if you do that, 30% of, of, of mortality will be saved in this setting. And in my experience, upwards of 50% of patients will be off all opioids within three months when you do that. That's incredible. I mean, you think about the opioid crisis, right? That's right. And there is no, yeah. actually, nobody's talking about it. There is not even close in terms of efficacy that anything's out there. Like the, for example, buprofen and Nar you know, Narcan and all those drugs. I mean, they're of course saving lives left and right. The problem is they're not an exit strategy often. They, they have, they are, the buprofen is, but it's a lot more complicated than people assume. And so the, the effective management, because it's not like, let's just stop the opioid. You gotta address why person went onto the opioid in the first place. If they have a chronic neuropathy or some other chronic pain syndrome, and you simply say, let's taper it off. What are you offering to a patient? The cannabis is offers not just the exit drug, it offers the solution for pain simultaneously and basically completely safe, I would say, when you use it right. So then 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 it becomes the cost and access issue, right? That's where we might get into social justice and, and access to health care. Justice, we get yeah. the fact that it's not covered, but you also have to look at this a little differently. You at the same time you have to look at the total burden to the society. Yeah, the cost yeah. of uh, patent opioids is, you know, we're talking about a thousand dollars a month for many uh, generics are way, way cheaper, but you're still looking at, say, hundred bucks a month at minimum. And the cannabis cost per month can be in the twenty, thirty dollars if we have a national legalization and a bigger. So, you know, right now it's probably closer to the same hundred dollars. 
but you know in terms of total cost in society to the future you're also going to save save money yeah yeah and, and you uh, will transfer money from pharma to elsewhere and i think that's partially partially here is the resistance as everybody understands so so there's a few um, a few things we want to talk about. Uh, well, let's let's go more more with uh, you said there was you know obviously indications for chronic pain for quality of life for cancer and, and maybe some you know small studies showing it's helpful as a disease modulating agent for brain cancer, um, some anxiety depression mood neuro vegetative symptoms any anything else that are kind of big conditions that you want to highlight that you yeah. would yeah. focus on in your book. Yeah, so any, anything that's related to neurodegenerative conditions, which is multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, there's a, you know, very large categories of use. Um, primarily, we're talking about symptoms related to those conditions, like, like behavioral disturbances in Alzheimer's, uh, motor symptoms of so the tremors and spasticity in Parkinson's disease, spasticity in multiple sclerosis. So the, all those conditions, cannabis can be very helpful for. There is a beginning of a new whole field of saying, could the cannabinoids, exogenous cannabinoids, could the extracts of cannabis plant in some way be used as part of the long-term strategy of curing neurodegenerative diseases? It's premature to say that we have a clarity, but we have a multiple signals that say it's going to be within a decade. I expect that it will be part of the standard treatment. And I'm talking about reversal. I'm not talking about symptom management here. So that's, that stay tuned. The data is all over the place. I'd say the most important areas for those conditions are sleep disturbances, um, agri kind of agitation, and um, motor symptoms. So those are the very big categories. You're saying the research that's still out there, they're, they're researching, say, like, cannabidiol or like CBD, CBG? or I'm what are they? not going to go there because this is a rabbit hole, which we will not come out for the next 30 minutes if we get there. Okay. The long okay. story is short yeah. is, you know, most of the cannabinoids specifically, you mentioned CBD and CBG have some strong neuroprotective characteristics. The problem with looking at those molecules and looking at something like, let's say, Alzheimer's disease is that the trials need to take potentially decades because mm -hmm. you it's a very slowly progressing diseases you have to look at them accordingly and you have to apply protocols and study them accordingly so we simply it's going to be a long time um yeah. i'm actually not convinced that cbd and cbg are the most important molecules i'm actually wondering if cbdv and some thc um metabolites and even THC itself is going to be just as critical, if not more critical. So, so long story short, here's a one word of wisdom for listeners. THC in young age in large amounts for the brain, developing brain seems to be quite detrimental. There's no argument over that. That's one thing we know for a fact. So if you take a young brain, say somebody in their teens or early 20s, and they recreationally taking a lot of THC, they definitely doing themselves a harm. There's no discussion over it. What, what's the mechanism for that, Misha, uh, for that? So, yeah, we understand it actually reasonably well. The main mechanism is that what happens is um, your natural production of your internal cannabinoids, let's say anandamide, is something that's primarily done on demand. Let's, let me give you an example. Let's say you are in, under a certain stress and you are telling your body, we need to manage this stress and critical part of management of that stress is the, your own THC. So your anandamide. And you will make it enough to control that particular stressful event. And, and that THC from regulatory perspective will help you to create further downstream signaling that will allow you to get over the stress healthy in, in a good way. Now imagine you suddenly take an exogenous molecule that's in inconceivably higher spike. Your endogenous production gets suppressed. Physiology of the receptors is shifted. And the thinking is that that leads to all kinds of downward effect, de decreased brain development, potentially a, a loss of some cognitive functioning, potentially increased risk of schizophrenia, potentially increased risk of accidents and all kinds of other issues. So, there's no question that there is a there is a negative impact. 
Now, adding CBD may be eliminating some of those impacts and probably not maybe, but I'd say for sure, just not clear whether it eliminates everything, whether the safety level goes back to baseline. If you combine THC, what should the ratio be? Should it be one-to-one -one CBD to THC? Should you take 10 to one CBD? I mean, there's a lot of holes. Do, holes do we have a general sense? Cause a lot of people are young at heart, right? <laughs> be taking well, right. High so, dose. So, so let's go back to the other side. So you have young people and then you have the older, older part. It turns out that there actually some of that extra THC becomes brain protective. So here you have a, what we sometimes call a J curve. At one age, you have a negative impact. At another age, you have a positive impact on the same part of the body. I'm talking about just brain right now. Okay. So why that is not really clear, except for one thing, as we get older, our own endocannabinoid system are, and the cannabinoid tone, as Ethan likes to say, drops. So we, we make more molecules that break down and then the mind, we, uh, have less receptors in the brain. We have less anandamide. So, so we can't generate as much anandamide. And that's actually a thinking partially why some of these neurocognitive conditions evolve in older age almost always because you have this chronic disturbance in endocannabinoid system that triggers in part. I, I'm sure there are tons of other triggers, but it's one of the triggers for evolving of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Sounds like as we get older, we need, we need more juice, essentially. Nice. We might need more juice. All kinds of yeah. different juices. What kind of juice, <laughs> pineapple juice, kiwi, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, and uh, and that's great. So um, what about other neuro conditions? Because I, I felt like uh, what I've seen too is that people with sure. migraines, people with mood issues, I, I've, I've read before, and maybe you could... Uh, corroborate this is, you know, endocannabinoid deficiency could be causative, at least either yep. triggering causative or perpetuating. Yep. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think anything brain related, whether or any neurological issues or psychological issues, I think cannabinoids can have a huge role in the future. I mentioned anxiety, but definitely for depression. I mean, there's a lot of people use cannabinoids for depression in different combinations and mixes. PTSD. Um, so I mentioned stress before for purpose turns out that our endocannabinoid system is number one regulatory system in, of stress. Not the way we used to think that it's all like, yeah. Actually, no, Not adrenals, no, right? no, no adrenals are secondary. Yeah. Cannabinoids regulate how adrenals are gonna respond to stress. Adrenals are in second place in the I'd race, is that what you're saying? probably say they're in third place. <laughs> they're kind of, you just support them, but you don't, you know. What's, what's the second? What's well, the second I mean, I, the central mind body, right? So if you don't, if you don't learn oh, the primary okay. regulatory, if you don't teach your body to self-regulate, yeah. the, the, trying mm -hmm, to support mm -hmm. adrenals is like, you know, putting the water on a major fire at the same time, putting logs to that fire. The, yeah, just adding some more logs. Exactly. To burn so, it, yeah. so the cannabis turns out to be critical there. So definitely anything chronically stress-related, there's some Def, definite use already. I'm not even talking about precise applications. That's going to come in the future when we have a lot more research out there. Um, what else in terms of psychological mentioned? Well, seizures, of course, everybody's talking about, especially since Sanjay Gupta's, uh, I think that's number six weed series. He particularly talked about seizures and, and seizures. Well, okay. I mean, we have okay. a FDA approved drug seizures which is cbd right epidiolex which was approved in 2019 yes. it's nothing but pure cbd um so you know we know that even the fda even the even the medical you community is already agreeing with some of this completely um but you know i i see that this is going to explode um other whole topic in which we could speak for hours is dermatology yeah so it turns out it is i'm sorry what what is dermatology you it turns out you okay. can probably manage almost all dermatologic conditions with cannabinoids. Uh, eczemas, um, any rashes, any allergies, any skin breakouts, infections of the skin like herpes infections, zoster. Everything Amazing. have cannabinoids. And we have a whole chapter on this. I don't want to go in there in great detail. Partially, uh, that topic is so fascinating because obviously for those things, if the problem is localized, you can put cannabis topically right on the lesion. And it, it often is profoundly effective and low cost because you're not taking some massive doses internally 
you're applying small amounts right where it needs to go, which brings me to this whole concept of what I often say, cannabis mantras, you know, in palliative care, we have those whole bunch of mantras, like the hand that writes for the opioid that doesn't write for the, for the bowel regimen should be cut off. Like we have those, <laughs> we have those things in, 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 in palliative way. It's pretty teaching, harsh, but yeah. Teaching that, makes sense. that, you know, you, gotta, you, have a, you have to do certain things, right? So yeah. with cannabis, the mantras are start low, go slow. And then I added this one and deliver where it needs to go. So it's actually most important in, in three, in my opinion, because we often think of cannabis more like smoke and take it orally, forgetting that there is all these other applications. I'm actually working now with a very cool group on trying to figure out how can you put cannabis in the eye? Because for glaucoma, people smoke currently. That's not a really good intake because it doesn't last <clears throat> very long and can have a lot of side effects. And really the main reason if you put something directly where it needs to go, amount of what you need to put there is is, menu, is way less. And so you're avoiding systemic toxicity, you're cutting the cost, you're making it logistically a lot easier because often, and, and you're literally often removing any serious functioning problem because one of the big practical reasons why a lot of people don't want to use cannabis, they're afraid of getting high. Let's put it this way. You know, if you have pain and you smoke pot and you get high, people say, well, I'm, my pain is better, but I'm high. I don't want to be high. So what do I do here? Well, if you have a pain in your feet, for example, a neuropathic pain, well, try topical first. And I'd say that in some percent of people, it works and it works really well. And they don't have to smoke or take anything orally. And suddenly you have a tool that is highly effective relatively low cost and zero central or, or kind of overall toxicity. I mean, you can have theoretical toxicity there, but it's way, way less likely to happen than when you take things orally or when you inhale them. So whole area out there. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Do you think um, the eye drops could potentially decrease intraocular pressure if they have if people have glaucoma? So it's actually not necessarily 100% clear. So it appears that THC will definitely decrease pressure. Problem is THC is not very water soluble. So you have to dissolve it into a substance that would be allowed to be put in the eye. So you can't put oil in the eye. You have to put aqueous solution. But acidic forms of THC and CBD, CBDA and THCA are more water soluble. So this is, I think, where it's going to go. You're going to try to put those molecules and try them out. But the old history is very unclear here. CBD actually could theoretically increase intraocular pressure. So nothing here's if, if I learned one thing about cannabinoids is there's nothing here simple there's just nothing simple it's a highly complex system with a lot of intricacies and details this is why you should take the course no I'm, I'm just kidding this Absolutely. is my point is that sure. my point brings me to the next really important topic which I wanted to just touch upon and that is we have to teach the forget the current generation of physicians this is just like lost <laughs> no it's just too complicated unrealistic the data is just coming out now we're not going to teach then they're not going to learn it we have to concentrate on the future generations which is what i decided to take as sort of my sidekick because i i don't want to get involved in the industry here so you have a course uh, well, you have a course no no we just course? no we don't i don't have a course there's a lot of courses that are really good and there's a lot of people who are much better educators than me but i decided that what i do know how to do is how to get things done in academia so we're actually trying to create a process in which we will create the set of minimal standards and we'll take that minimal standards to the guarding body of all the medical schools in the, in the country and actually in the world and we're going to tell them look given what's going on you must assure that every medical student graduating from medical school has some minimum knowledge of this topic yeah because right now when they graduate they only know they only know the following cannabis causes side effects here's the list of side effects um, here's what cannabis can interact with and that's it it cannot do any benefit. Nobody teaches in terms of clinical applications of benefits. They're only teaching pharmacology. 
about toxicity and metabolism. So currently the students, if they get excited by this topic, they have to find a mentor. There's very few mentors out there or they're gonna have to sort of wait until they're fully trained in their field, graduate, get their degree, start working and then take one of those like fancy high-end courses. It's from- a bit tilted against learning about the true applications that this is a big disservice to, I, I guess, everyone, you know? And not only that, yeah. there is been historically in the last five years a tremendous oppressive force from the AMA and from a uh, uh, guarding agency that makes CMEs so that every doctor has to take X amount of CMEs per year in order to continue being licensed. And that's actually applies to every, it's not just doctors, it's PAs, nurse, everybody. And so there's been tremendous pressure against not granting CMEs. So I've, last year I was giving a talk at Andrew Weil's conference and they were highly apologetic. Even Andy called me and said, look, sorry, we can't give you CME for your talk on cannabis. So Donald Abrams, who's a good friend of mine and, and a mentor, he got furious. He sent the letter to the head of CME at the University of Arizona saying, what the hell is going on? It's a highly evidenced presentation. I reviewed it myself. Like, what is this? How can you not grant CMEs? And the reason for that is very simple. It, it's a large medical industrial complex. They're afraid of this whole topic. They don't know how to handle it. There's no standards of education. There's no standard guidelines of anything here. So there's an oppression happening from not knowing, being ignorant, maybe some pharma industry, I don't know, I don't care. But like, it seems like until we get uh, past the crap and get to a point where minimum standard education exists, every medical students and every nursing student and whatever have some basic knowledge when they come out of the training. It's a good idea. Mm-hmm. How far from it are we? I don't know, but so I, I felt like let's try to do something in line with that because if we achieve even the, gra- even the publication of such competencies out there in a very good journal, then it's a first moving step. So wow. everything's gonna move here very slowly. So if you're a patient and you're looking for cannabis expertise, good luck, you're gonna need it. Well, go see Dr. Kogan. That's definitely, uh, you need uh, to see well, Dr. Kogan. Only one guy. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well we I'm can talk offline about people. the training programs because I do think that would be really helpful for for you know us to learn. Um, and and I sure. think there's, there's just need to be more people trained you know, out there. There needs to um, be more people trained. There are hopefully gonna be more and more academic programs because part of the problem, there's a lot of great programs, you know, Society of Cannabis Clinicians, Dustin Sulek has his own training. Um, you know, just a lot of, there's a lot of good people who are doing, I think Bonnie Galstein has a course. Like there's a lot of really great courses. The problem is when they're not inside academia or when they're run by the industry people, you cre- it, it, it's an automatic tension. Only a true enthusiast will take those courses and that will leave everybody else out and they're going to be highly skeptical of coming joining these programs. And that's, that's just a part of evolution. If you look at every other field that came before the integrative medicine, for example, right? It's exactly the same. I, it took how many decades for like integrative medicine silo organizations stay there but now like you have some kind of integrative medicine at every ivy league every medical school in this country pretty much so it's just a matter of time it's a matter of continuous effort it's a matter of creating standardization in the field but you know but the good news is that it's growing rapidly just because there's so much money in this and there's so many new doctors coming out saying and and there's people are demanding that you know that that this is you know be more accessible so let's say there's a patient out there listeners out there they want to try cannabis medical cannabis or cbd how do they access this at this time is it different in different states so it depends on the state since we are in our tri-state area let's talk about that first so if you're in a district or in maryland and i'll talk to virginia and separately you go and you get your card pretty, you know, within a, say four to six weeks, you have to have a doctor who will give you a recommendation for the card. And then they're set up dispensaries and, and district has been doing this since it was approved in 2010 and dispensaries first, I believe was in 2012. So it's been now 10 years. So they're quite experienced. There's a lot of different products, 
prices gradually has been trickling down very slowly. We're still not anywhere near where we should be. Like we're still two, three times more expensive than Maine or California. So there's big discrepancies still. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, it's, it's, it's going into the right direction. So uh, Maryland is much newer. DC and Maryland have reciprocity. So if you're a, a Maryland resident, you can go and get your cannabis from district. If you're a Virginia resident, you can also get it from district, but you cannot get it from Maryland. Uh, and Maryland cannot get it from Virginia. Okay. Yeah. So Virginia is the newest. It's been very recent that they added. Their dispensaries are still like just starting to have reasonable products right now. It's just the flour and maybe some gummies, but it's really not anywhere near where it should be. But but you can get a license from Virginia and then go get it from district. This district, is yeah. Every yeah. single one of my patients do. That's great. Them. That's great. So, you know, and Virginia cards are in some ways even easier. The process there, the, the way they set it up is very simple. So, but you, your doctor has to have uh, been approved to be a recommender of cannabis. We don't say prescriber, it's recommender. Right, right. But, but how do, when they go to the dispensary, who's actually recommending to them okay. the, the so ratios and the, like the form and stuff so like that? That's yeah. where the things, yeah. that's where the problems are. Yeah. So I recently was talking to a head of internal medicine at GW and I said, look, do you want me to start training our residents in this topic? She said, oh, no, 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 we're doing it ourselves. And I'm like, you're doing it yourself? And I'm like, so what are you doing? Oh, we just teach them how to write the cards. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this is what's happening. They're just teaching them how to do the card. And then you have problems and you have problems probably at least in 50% of cases because the patients end up in the best case scenario, they'll go to a dispensary that's much more medical, that has a staff that understands what they're going through, that they can ask them the right question, that they have enough knowledge to recommend the right ratio, right route, right dosing, right titration, all of those things. The reality is that unfortunately is highly mixed. Uh, the butt tenders are often clueless. We have a lot of people who are like, 20 year old kid who just it's, finished it's, yeah it's a roll of dice i mean it sounds it's like a roll it's a of a dice it's yeah. a now maryland is aggressive at trying to say that shouldn't be happening every uh going forward every dispensary will have to have a medical person on staff okay okay like uh, uh you know pharmacist nurse mm -hmm. physician like the, somebody who can, who is licensed who can guide the dispenser that's good that's good Mm -hmm. district is trying to design something virginia's as always in in dark ages of, of the uh you know inquisitory time whatever wherever virginia is <laughs> sorry not trying to pick on them they're always behind for us. cannabis for cannabis for yeah cannabis. but anyway so it, it's gradually going to move to the right place but the but right now the whole point, the way we wrote book is to for, for somebody to get the chapter that they need, let's say chronic pain, open it up and have a precise recommendation that they can take to the dispenser and say, give me this in this dose and this is how I will take it. Now, of course, it's simplified. I still think that it's really hard to just use the book and go get something. You really still have to have a guide because the reality is it's still more complicated than people think and there's you know especially if you have other medical problems you're taking multiple medications you can run in a lot of issues if you don't know what you're doing time to take your the courses that you recommend i'll talk to you more about that uh, offline misha well thank you so much for coming on today everyone that's listening please check out dr kogan's book a uh, new book medical marijuana evidence-based guide to health benefits of cannabis and cbd it's a great book and I think it's a great, great exactly. start. Like you said, it is more complicated than, than that for people with a lot of medical issues, but certainly even in the but even for But even for those patients, there's a actual kind of a ground foundation what to do. And, okay. and, and it's actually was written for, I had a lot of my colleagues say, hey, I got the book and I read it and I now know what to tell to the patients. Like, so it's, it's not, it's not in like, like an introductory level. It's, it's pretty yeah. It's just, it's it just the reality is when you start somebody on it and if it's be, going to become a tool, chances are that it's going to get pretty sophisticated and they're going to be on two or three products potentially and they're going to be mixing and matching them. So, so there's a lot of learning and there's a lot of like understanding and moving forward. So the book is putting you on that step to learn, but eventually you'll have to have more advanced knowledge. 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect knowing you, Misha, anything you write to be introductory. It's very in-depth and thorough. So yeah, that's, that's great. Well, thank you, Misha, for coming yeah. on today. How can listeners learn more about you and work with you? So um, yeah, so the GWCIM.com, uh, it's a clinical site. Um, those people who are in Medicare and Medicaid, they actually can try to get into my insurance-based practice. If you, have a, if you have a private insurance, I don't recommend it because whole point is that leave my time open to those who are vulnerable because I do try to balance my practice, both uh, out-of-pocket but also insurance-based at university. So you can find me at gwdocs.com. I'm there and you can try to get through to me that way. We only do telemedicine now for local states, I believe, because that's changing. I used to do telemedicine for the whole country, but I think that's shifting now. Okay. But in my practice, we still do that in, in, okay. in out-of-pocket practice. And, and for the book, people can find it anywhere. I mean, it's it's a random house. So it's it's in Amazon everywhere. They have an Audible. Actually, I'm kind of proud because the Audible was recorded by the same guy who did uh, Life of Pi and Harry Potter. Oh, nice. So because, so yeah, I, I think they um did well with that and then the soft cover is going to come out next year i i guess they're spreading them out by about a year year and a half between the heart because the right now is just a hardcover so that's going to be much cheaper because got it i know you also have the integrative geriatrics book that uh you wrote i think earlier than that right with dr wild so that's textbook so i that's textbook a, okay. okay now we i do have my next book is coming out hopefully within six to 12 months unfortunately i'm going to compete with mark's book and exactly same topic, uh, healthy aging. Okay. But hey, you know, hey. I, I didn't know he was doing this. I There's enough started. demand out there, I think, to, to learn, you know. Well, mine, I think, is going to be a little bit more towards complex geriatric conditions rather than, I think, Marx and Cara's book, Cara Fitzgerald, they're more like, how do you stay healthy and what are the... I think mine's okay. going to be a little more toward you're already a bit older and you have multiple problems. Com com complexities and stuff, yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll look forward to that as well. All right. Well, thank you, Misha, for coming on today. And uh, thank you, thank you, Indian. Thanks, guys. Um, thank you. It's wonderful to uh, that we're local and that you're here, and then we collaborate on all kinds of. Yes, things. exactly, exactly. And thank you all for listening. And I uh, hope you guys have a good, good, uh, good day here. The rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.